I drive an hour to the coast because I'm looking and I can do that. Yeah. And I take off my shoes and I go sit my feet in the sand and I feel with some waves and I feel the sun on my face. Yeah. And then I'd be okay. And for other people, as being in the dirt or whatever, and it, it might be closer to home, but um, that does work. Before I jump into this episode, I want to let you know that there's a few sound issues. First, Steph was really sick when we spoke. It wasn't COVID-related. Our conversation actually happened prior to the pandemic. And we were speaking over the phone, so the sound quality wasn't super sharp. That said, I think the things that Steph had to say is interesting enough that a bit of bad sound is a small cost to pay. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. In the previous episode of Just Sustainability, we left off with Steph Fragosi and I speaking about the need to highlight skills and the broad range of vocations available for students interested in sustainability. In this episode, we jump right back into that conversation with Steph, and Steph and I talk about the core competencies that folks concerned with sustainability should have. Problem-solving skills are probably like the number one thing. So you're faced with whatever kind of situational problem, how are you going to tackle it? Who do you need to talk to? What resources can you gather around you? How can you break apart this problem in a manageable way? What time frame? How, like basically in essence, anything that you would need to write a grant or a proposal, yeah. um, is a problem solving skill. And if you, it, and then once you do it, like how do you sell it? How do you, um, how do you get someone else to do it? Right? How do you, <laughs> how do you communicate it? And then how do you make sure it's replicable? Right, that you can do it again. Uh, I feel like that those are a really core part of, of how we do what we do, and why I'm able to be an analyst um, is just. I mean, people walk up to me with the most wide variety of questions in sustainability, and that's why it's such an appealing field, right? It's like, <laughs> can you take a look at this like internal pre? carbon pricing thing and then can you take a look at this like solar RFP and then can you take a look at this like climate equity exercise I mean I, I do a lot of different types of things in a week um, and if I didn't have decent problem or good get to better good to excellent problem solving skills uh, I couldn't do it at all right? it would just be overwhelming and so being able to break down problems um, and even just being able to, to wrap your head around it, it's, it's so hard. And what I know for students who are looking at climate change, it's, it must be so insurmountable. It's like, how do I break that down to a level that is meaningful to me as like a small grain of sand in this huge universe? Yeah. Um, and that's what we have to, to get to them. They yeah. can handle anything after that. Yeah, I've definitely run into that because I'm right now teaching a, a climate change and moral responsibility class and uh I sometimes feel that we're going through the sorts of problems that students, or not students, but just people in general need to think about, thinking about climate change going forward. Uh, the students just become overwhelmed by just sort of the, the scale, the complexity uh, of the things that we all need to be thinking about if we want to be um, more effective about addressing our impacts on climate. 
And, yeah, and how do I, you know, we think about how to deal with, with college students, but I'm a parent. Like, how do I talk about this to a 10 year old? How do I talk about it to people who, like, don't have children and aren't sure whether or not they should? You know, how do I talk about it to five year olds? Um, so that's another aspect, too, where it's like, how do we, how do we convey not necessarily a sense of urgency, but ethical and moral responsibility and how to balance and navigate ethics. I think the issue is just to make things seem not overwhelming, right? Uh, I I think it's the sense of overwhelmingness that sometimes is the barrier to folks doing things, right? The It's easy to give up when things seem impossible. And people, young people particularly, or inexperienced people, Uh they have every reason to feel like they're not confident in their skills. So whatever we can do to provide them with that confidence, you know, that confidence building and that skill building and like letting them know they really know something, that's a huge deal. I walked out of college, like my senior year of college, I went and did some teaching assistance thing for one of the math teachers who wanted to, to give students like one hour sustainability lectures every week. And I did this every other week. Yeah. And like the first three lectures were terrible. Because I do a ton and I didn't know how to break it down in an hour. You know, that's what I was learning how to do that term. But I also learned that I knew a whole lot. And I was really surprised that. But I was surprised that after four years of being in college, I knew something. Because I didn't feel like I did. Right. <laughs> you know, and so I, I almost wonder if, if we should be doing more literacy assessment just so that something, we have to find a way to give them that sense of like yeah. knowing empowerment. Um, and rec- you know, that's what recognition is about. That's what majors are about, but they don't always convey, uh, that sense to students. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, right, that's the weird thing with the Dunning Kruger effect, right? Like, when you know nothing, you're really confident. You think you know a lot. Then you get to know more, and then you realize there's a whole lot I don't know. And you start losing that confidence. And I, I think that's where we're, our, a lot of our students are, right? They, they know enough to, like, realize that there's a lot they don't know, and then that, that, Sometimes has an adverse impact on right their sense of effectiveness. I'm middle aged, and I'm sort of like becoming personally reassured that I'm going to be okay in life, and that took a long time to earn. Yeah. You know, and that it really does take a long time to earn. And uh, sense of urgency of what's going on in the world is not going to be reassuring to students who doesn't think that they're going to get to middle age, or think that their middle age is going to be vastly threatened by climate disruption. Right. Um, so we have to find other ways to keep them mentally present in the here and now and not meandering so far down the future that they, they cease to function. Right. Um, people are so terrible. I, I get that they're I'm paralyzed some days. I know. I'm, I'm decent at shaking myself out of it most of the time, but I've had a lot of practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I've been doing is I've been uh, suggesting my students read a, are you are you familiar with Bob Jensen? He uh, used to be a uh-huh. yeah yeah. So Is he's he a, a droplet guy. He's what? No, I well go ahead because maybe I don't know. Uh, so he he's a, a he's a journalist and he was a journalism professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, he has a series of articles that he's written about like uh, parallels. Uh, I don't know how you put it, but I would put that he's paralleling climate change with you know the that sort of recognition that one is mortal. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's recognizing that we're sort of in for something that 
will be unpleasant. Yet we need to think about how we navigate that as being honest with ourselves about our impacts on climate, what those will mean for our future, what those will mean for the, you know, the quality of life for ourselves and our descendants. And then getting over that and thinking about how we remain effective in making the world as livable as possible. I think one of the things for me to tie into that is as somebody who does planning work and mm-hmm. very focused in the future and not always as focused on process. Mm-hmm. And one of the lovely things that being focused on process can bring you is an emphasis on grace and an emphasis on like how how we navigate the world matters mm-hmm. and that you bring it back to diversity and equity. So I was having a conversation with some folks that were we were just feeling really down about climate change and I said something about like needing wanting to feel like we can at least we can at least come to whatever situation we come to with grace mm-hmm. as a human race. Right? And it's a very like philosophical you know, it's not very tangible. It's very out there. It's like, but if we can do this with grace, you know, then spiritually I might have reached somewhere. And I, I am not a religious human being by any sense of the word, but I, I do have a spiritual side. And I feel like if I can somehow revive that a little bit and say, you know, am I handling this process well? Am I, because I'm just a drop of sand in time, right? I'm always going to, I'm an existential person. I'm always going to be that. So how can I, how can I do that? Well, like, that's, that's how I get through my day. Like, I'm yeah. just nothing, it doesn't matter. Um, but it, 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 for those of us who want it too, like, we're still enough, um, wanting to be graceful, wanting to be, I'm thinking of like Jack and Kennedy on NASA's all of a sudden, but wanting to be able to hold your head up in like the face of some overwhelming disaster. Yeah. Well, I did everything I could, and yeah. this isn't about blame. You know, this is about like the process. You know, in the eyes of your soul or in the eyes of your moral compass, like how did you handle this? Uh-huh. You know, and maybe we handled it badly. Like, but we tried, and you know, that's another way to evaluate. Um, progress that has nothing to do with numbers and metrics and outcomes. Right. You know, right? And so we live in a world that is, you know, where that's kind of white supremacy, where like the process is, in, is discounted over progress and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we shouldn't discount it so much. Somehow, uh, I'm not quite exactly sure how, even after listening to the recording several times, I got into talking about David Hume and backgammon. However, that random aside, let's have to start talking about what's required to solve problems and the need for us to emphasize wellness. David Hume does say at the end of one of his books that, uh, right, in the end, he's just going to go play backgammon. He's thought about the problem enough. It's time to just, you know, do something that he enjoys. Well, how we solve problems, right? Like, I'm married to a mathematics professor. Yeah. They solve problems everywhere. Like, it's not just when they're paying attention to the problem. It's when they're drinking coffee or taking a shower. Yeah. Um, our brains need to be in the right state in order for us to solve problems and do it well. And so we have that self-maintenance and self-care aspect that we need to provide for ourselves. And that's that's one of the things that we work with our students on for sure. We have some trainings here on like how to face climate justice, you know, how to face climate change and on, you know, climate equity and resilience. And, um, I think those are all 
really important things in those webinars are are very valuable, but the actual practice of them is far more important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Making time to go do it is, is so hard. Yeah. Uh, vacation is for students get don't get enough of one. They could just be in the soil. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think other other communities might have different ways of handling that too. Like communities that are totally urban, I wonder what that is for them. Um, I think it's a good question to ask. I like to end each of my episodes for just sustainability by asking my interlocutor whether there were any topics they wanted to talk about that I never got to. Steph took that opportunity to talk about how we need to think critically about how we make space for conversation to be able to be more inclusive with our discourse. Probably the thing that we haven't talked about as much as maybe I thought we would, which is space and creating inclusive and expansive and safe space for conversations and how we do it as a society, how we do it at the individual level, and how we do it in, in public. And I, there are a lot of challenges going on because of social media and how we use it and it's total lack of restrictions that is making it challenging to figure out how to have productive and safe conversations mm-hmm. around challenging topics, right? And that there may be some things that we shouldn't talk about with 300 million people in the room all trying to have an opinion at once because it doesn't make for productive conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that a lot on Instagram for me personally and my knitting community where they're, they're, you know, it's not always the best tool for accomplishing what we want, but we also have to be very careful of the space that we create. Yeah. Um, and so that, that people were not whitewashing it basically is what I'm trying to say. So for AG, we may not have, we definitely need to do it, but we create a spaces for higher ed. Mm-hmm. And higher ed is a place that comes from institutional racism and has a long history of exclusion. And because we did that, I think we may have closed some doors without many do. And so if you just look at that space and you see what that space provides, um, it may not be reflective of sustainability as a whole. Like it certainly isn't. But I don't know that we recognize that inherently because we spend a lot of time looking at it, like sustainability officers do. Um, and I may not spend enough time looking out into my community, seeing what my community is up to, or seeing what the global community is up to, or seeing what somebody else is doing in another field that does parallel work. Uh, we need a channel, find a channel for that to come into our, our space better. So whether it's the issue community that Green School List serve, or whether it's through our own Instagram accounts that we're sharing with each other or Twitter or whatever. It's it's wonderful to have these private conversations with you like minded individuals. We also need to make sure that we're having conversations with other less like minded but maybe similarly value aligned people. Yeah. Or at the very least we need to be we need to be cognizant that we're having conversations with right, who we're having conversations with and who we're not. And there's the difference between having a conversation and, and finding some research and, and making a decision, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's decision-making, I absolutely feel like, yeah, we need to be collaborative-based decisions, and those decisions need to happen from a, a broad community, with a broad community lens and a community-based input. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we need to be careful about how we define expertise in a way that's inclusive so that everybody gets to the table. Because there are times where you only want experts at the table, but you, you you do need to make sure that you define expertise 
mm-hmm. in a way that might include other kinds of knowing and other kinds of, of education. If that makes sense. Yeah. Expertise. That's, that's something we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about indigenous ways of knowing. We've been talking about the knowledge of people who've been historically marginalized and, and do without, um, and trying to figure out how to bring that into the space. No, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I think that's actually something that I'm happy about with higher ed, that higher ed, I mean, at least in the conversations that I, I participate in and I'm aware of, that there's, uh, a growing recognition that the this the Western European post Enlightenment model of uh, inquiry isn't the only one, and that indigenous modes of inquiry actually are valuable and have insights that the, the sort of the post Enlightenment model miss out on. <laughs> I love the fact that you could your field of it. You could just talk about it this way. It's very helpful to me. Um, no, I, I fully agree, and I think one of the dangers for us in higher ed is when we start to move to completion-based model, or in education period, we start to move to completion-based um, funding. And, you know, if we're going to get funded based on how much our students finish, like, we're going to have a pretty big problem very fast. Mm-hmm. And we need to extend the way that we handle those metrics and, and higher ed out into the business world and out into, you know, government because those are the folks that are putting outside pressure on us to perform at this point in our conversation we had a bit of a connection problem so steph got interrupted here's when we got reconnected and steph finished her thought finished that last thought i was having which was just about making sure that we are able to i think it was about like what performances and finding other metrics for performance and yeah. Getting um, getting other folks to recognize that they're it's not just numbers. <laughs> You've got real people here with real experiences, and those matter quite a bit, mm-hmm. especially at a community college where there's so many other factors that can prevent a student from completion. And I worry about performance based, you know, funding a lot yeah, yeah. as a public well, institution because in, for, it, for colleges and schools. Because it narrows what we can do in higher ed, and I think. It, wait, it, right. In a, in a world where we're getting increasingly complicated problems, uh, we need to have as much diversity of thought and, and inquiry as possible if we're going to actually deal with some of these problems. Somebody must know what great inquiry really is for those other for those other types. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just it, it, it just let it go of our numbers sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of bad stats out in the world, and a lot of people don't have faith in them anymore. The question is, what do they have faith in, and why? Yeah, you know, and how can we use that to to get a clear message out there about what what science is, what journalism is, all of these basic U.S. Um, amendments? <laughs> you know, they really they really matter. Uh-huh. Civics education matters. Oh my goodness. There are all these things that are so important. There are like these big overarching concepts that allow sustainability to happen. That brings us to the close of this episode and my conversation with Steph Fragosi. We covered a range of topics, including one, the core competencies that Steph thinks is required for folks working to promote sustainability. Two, the importance of wellness. And three, the need to make space for more inclusive discourse in the realm of sustainability. Next week, I'll be posting the final episode of the first season of Just Sustainability. 
If you enjoy the show, don't worry. Uh, it'll be back in the fall equinox, uh, September 22nd, with season two. I've already started recording conversations and have some fun surprises planned for all of you. Anyhow, to close out season one, I'll be posting a slightly different episode. Rather than a conversation, I'll be posting some audio recorded while I was recording a video for the Coplat conference with one of my favorite partners in crime. If by crime, you mean awesome kickassery. Troy Goodenow. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.